This is it. You you get the honor. Or the re- whatever the reverse of honor is. The good good morning. I'll I'll get started. Um we're in a we're in a series systematic theology series uh, through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and the series is on the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, in the first four months uh, of this year and the month before that, I was studying the doctrine of Scripture through the lens of one man named J.C. Ryle, and the church helped pay for it. So this is to prove to you I didn't waste my time. But actually, the issue is the authority of Scripture. And the way this is relevant to our lives, even though this man died in the year 1900, is that we're going to see an example of how the authority of Scripture is relevant to life, including leadership, including when there's controversy. Uh, So... Um, l- let me pray, and then I'll kind of explain a few things, give you some, encourage you to do some more reading, and uh, hopefully be helped by this. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the lives of godly men. You tell us to imitate the faith of faithful men. We're thankful that in Scripture you give us an example of how we can look to the saints of the past and learn from them. In Hebrews 11, we pray that we would never, though, replace Jesus with some mere human, no matter how godly, no matter how influential. So we're thankful that you have been providentially and supernaturally at work through your Holy Spirit to encourage people, to raise up leaders, to give examples that we could follow. And we pray that as we think about the authority of Scripture, we would be led to what the whole Bible is about and the what is a who, your son Jesus. We pray that we would rejoice in him this morning. In his name we pray, amen. So this is, this is some of the content from my master's thesis defense. Uh, if you, a master's thesis is meant to be, meant to have an academic contribution, which means sometimes, you, which means you have to do something unique. You have to look at something, produce something that in some way has never been done before, at least published. So that makes it really hard, but the way you get around that really difficult thing is you choose something really, really precise that nobody has ever looked at before. So I'll give you my thesis statement in a minute, and you're going to be like, wow, that's really detailed and technical. But I'll explain what it means. Um, To learn more about J.C. Ryle, I'd encourage, there's two, uh, the more recent biography that I would recommend is by Ian Murray. Ian Murray's a great historian. I have a few little quibbles with him on this, but not much. It's good. Uh, the better written biography is older, 
It, it's missing a few sources that Murray has. This is called J.C. Ryle, That Man of Granite with the Heart of a Child by Eric Russell, who himself was from Liverpool. Um, but if you want to know about Ryle, you need to read Ryle. He, uh, every, every source I'm going to mention, quoting Ryle, you can get for free online somewhere. I just about guarantee it. Because most of his books were compilations of tracts that he wrote. And all those tracts are in the public domain. So I, pretty, I can show you the, what that website is if you want to read more. But uh, so the book that's the best book to read, he, he ends it about 20 years before he dies, though. So this is where these come in. It's his own autobiography, which was written to his children to inform them about what his life was like beforehand. Um, and I'll explain a little bit of his biography. That was him when he was younger. That was him when he was older, obviously. Something's a little fishy here with the technology today. Pen's not working. All right. Here's my thesis statement. And you guys are going to be amazed. <laughs> Your lives will never be changed. Uh, will now be changed because of this. So it's J.C. Riles. His name is John Charles Riles. Evangelical doctrine of the authority of Scripture must be considered foundational to his unique efforts to influence the Victorian Church of England theologically and polemically. Let me explain the key points of that, of that word. Yeah, I'm going to explain. So first, Ryle was an evangelical. He believed what we believed about the Bible. He believed that the Bible was true and without error, was inspired, that it was about Jesus who revealed um, who, who is revealed in Scripture. The idea of authority, we, we've talked about, so I don't need to go too much into that. But the, the whole idea that Scripture is the final authority. Now, Ryle is in the Church of England. The Church of England in his time is very broad. There's liberals, there's basically Catholics, uh, there's evangelicals, but they're not, there's not a ton of them. Uh, and then there's people that are, are even kind of in the middle of all those. Uh, and then I talk about unique efforts. He's trying to influence people. And we live in an age where people, by nature as human beings, we're always trying to influence people. But that's kind of shady in our day and age because people say, well, you, you can't tell me what to do. You, do. you do you, I'll do me, and we'll be fine. But, but that's not the way God intended things. God, God delegated rule to his people to advance his kingdom and his purposes. So he, Ryle put forth efforts to influence the Church of England. And now the question is, is how successful was he? And that's debated by historians. Um, now theologically, that just means uh, thoughts about God and the word and scripture and so forth. Um, polemically is probably the word that's really tricky. Polemics is the discipline or the act of basically criticizing or critiquing people you disagree with. Which again is not very popular in our day and age. But anytime you hear me from the pulpit say, Roman Catholics say this, we disagree with that. 
That's polemics. If I say this preacher says this, don't trust him, that's polemics. So Ryle, Ryle engaged in polemics often, and the church has to. The problem is, is that some people love arguing so much, you can build a whole church on just telling how everybody else is wrong, and that's not helpful either. Um, and so the structure of how, I'll explain this, oh, and then foundational. So what, I'm, what I mean by that is you can't explain Ryle unless you bear, get all the way down to the foundation, and that foundation is his authority of Scripture. You can't explain him. So if, if the authority of Scripture is his foundation, then we can make sense of Ryle. We can make sense of how he lived his life. But if that's not the foundation for his life, you can't explain him. So that's what I'm after there. So we'll look at it in, in four categories, his biography, his theology, his use of church history, which he wrote, and then how he engaged in controversies and polemics. Um, see if this works now. Oh, come on. Try to be Mr. Prepared. Okay. Um, the authoritative word was foundational to theologically understand J.C. Ryle. So what does that mean? It means to make sense of J.C. Ryle if we think theologically, if we think, if we think about things in light of who God is, this is how we can make sense of him, the authority of Scripture. So first off, Ryle is born into immense wealth, crazy amount of wealth. He was, he was born in this town called Macclesfield, uh, England, which is near Manchester. His grandfather was a silk merchant who made a fortune in the Industrial Revolution. His dad, uh, and his, his grandfather was a very godly man. He knew the Wesleys. John Wesley would stay with uh, John, Grandpa Ryle, who was also John Ryle. Um, and they had a close relationship. Ryle's dad, also John Ryle, um, not very godly person. Nominal Anglican. He inherited money from his father and started banks in Manchester and developed, had two banks, one in Macclesfield, one in Manchester, and they grew, got more and more wealthy. Um, so, so Ryle was then educated at Eton. This is a picture of Eton, um, which is like the best, uh, they call it a public school, but it's like a boarding school in England. And then he went to Oxford and he hated Oxford. Uh, he was an outstanding athlete. He was probably the best cricket player in England of his generation. Um, he was also good at rowing, things like that. Which, so, so like, I thought you said he was an athlete. Um, anyhow, but raised with no real religion, pre-conversion. Then one day, he, so he's... But, but to get scholarships, he's got to study in the Anglican Church what's called the 39 Articles, which is their statement of faith. And it's a good statement of faith. So he's forced to study the 39 Articles, but it's all just kind of intellectual to him. It do, nothing sinks in at all. Um, when he was raised, he, he'd heard these rumors of these fanatics called evangelicals who were well-meaning, but off track. Then he's at Oxford, and he's again studying, he has to study 39 articles. He gets sick, and he's basically laid up for several weeks. He, his, academically, he's brilliant. Uh, they almost made us, he and two other guys were s 
such great students, they almost made a special category of awards when they graduated. Um, because they so far exceeded even the, the next category of excellent um, intellect people. So he's studying for his exams, he gets sick, and he's laid up, and basically he may not live. So he starts really praying and starts reading the Bible, and he thinks, starts to think, maybe the evangelicals are right. When I think about what the Bible is saying, when I think about the 39 articles, I think they're, they're onto something. Then the story goes, and you can read the account at the end that he, he told his friend Canon Christopher. Um, he walks into a church one day during this, it's like a six month period of his conversion. And some guy, not even the preacher, gets up and reads Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved by faith. And not of works. Just reading it essentially con helped convert J.C. Ryle. So he's converted basically through Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Now after he's converted, he is an outcast in his family. He's always just barely tolerated because of, he, because of his Christianity. Um, then he's going to inherit, this is Henbury Hall, which he was going to inherit. And there was hundreds of acres around there. He was going to go into Parliament. He wakes up one day in June 1841. His famous statement is, all the world before me. And I went to, we went to bed that night totally ruined. His, his father's banks failed. They lost the equivalent of $80 million in one day. Nothing left. He had to, basically no clothes. Because there was no like, legal protections that separated personal and business assets, lost everything. Um, so he becomes a, becomes a Christian. Uh, well, he's, he's a Christian at this point. He walks through that, still believing. He has nowhere to go other than into ministry now. All doors are shut to him. He could have been the personal assistant to William Gladstone, who went on to be prime minister, but he didn't trust Gladstone, so he didn't work with him. Um, so he goes into the ministry, and the authoritative word is what drives him. Believing that the Bible really is the word of God and really has authority explains him. So he, when he preaches, he preaches with simplicity. In fact, he write, writes this great pamphlet that anybody wants to preach, to preach called Simplicity in Preaching. He was trained at Oxford to be very ornate. He's a great orator, but he realizes he, he actually ends up going to small towns in the south of England. Realizes it's not helpful for them. You've got to be simple. You've got to be clear. And so he, he preaches with simplicity. He writes a tremendous amount of material. In the Victorian England, the only person that really comes close and probably actually outseeds him, but we have his written, re written records, is a Baptist. I'm sure you all know who he is. Spurgeon. Really, Spurgeon and Ryle are the evangelical like, guys pumping out the material, and they had great respect for each other, so they disagreed. So he wrote tons and tons of stuff, probably because he, was a small he ended up being in small towns. He had time to do it. Um, and then he participated in these congresses with liberals and stuff, and he was just berated by the conservatives. And the reason why is because he had confidence that the word was powerful. 
It's like I can show up, and I don't need to be scared of what these, these, of these, what these Catholic guys are going to say or what these uh, liberal guys are going to say because the Word of God is true. And so I'm not afraid to stand up and tell what the Word of God says. And you can't explain him um, without understanding the Word. So he even explains himself in light of the Word of God. People may account for such a change, that's his conversion, as they like. My own belief is that no rational explanation can be given of it but that of the Bible. It was what the Bible calls conversion and regeneration. Before that time, I was dead in sins and on the high road to hell. And from that time, I became alive and had a hope of heaven. And that's all of us. Yeah, question. Uh, Anglicans, so Anglicans in, this, in that, this, his time period, there's three categories. High church, which are basically Roman Catholics, but in the, in the Church of England. And there's a huge, uh, huge resurgence of that that begins at Oxford right before Ryle gets there, called the Tractarian Movement, uh, John Henry Newman. Um, then there's broad church, which are kind of, uh, they're kind of like liberals, saying we'll include everybody. Uh, and then there's low church, which is him, which are evangelicals. Which he would walk into our church and say we're not quite liturgical enough. But he would, uh, and I'll explain actually some of that more. Um, so now how do we understand his theology? To do that, we need to look at his view of the inspiration of Scripture, his, the, what he actually believes about the authority of Scripture, and then how that flows into sufficiency. And we'll talk about the sufficiency of Scripture in the fall. Um, we're going to get to that. That'll be the first section we come back to uh, in Sunday school. And the sufficiency of Scripture will explain why he stayed in the Church of England, even though there's all kinds of problems. His, the view of the authority of Scripture has to be justified when we think about possible contradictions. Because there's really two options if you think there's a contradiction. You basically abandon the authority of Scripture, or you try to explain them. Um, and he tried to explain them. Um, but listen to this quote. There's only one standard of truth and error to which we ought to appeal. That standard is the Holy Scripture. Whatsoever is, is there written, we must receive and believe. Whatsoever cannot be proved by Scripture, we ought to refuse. There's another quote that he has where basically like, essentially, even if this causes us to suffer, if we start bleeding because we're trying to obey Scripture, we're doing the right thing. We don't have any other option. If Scripture's the authority, if, if we're, we've got to be willing to even suffer to experience it. So in Ryle's day, there was really two... Uh, Two options for how you viewed Scripture. Uh, nobody, I don't say nobody, but very few people would have flatly said, the Bible's not a special book. Nobody really would have said that. Everybody knew there's something unique about the Bible. Um, but there was really two options. Liberals held to the idea of limited inspiration. So they would say that parts of the Bible are inspired and true, but some others are not. And, you know, things like some of these miracle stories, like we can't trust those. 
That's what really inspired uh, some of the scientific things, statements it makes about creation. Well, we, well, Darwin just released this book, so we don't need to believe that. Um, and so Dave has done a good job on that. Um, and so this picture, what, what I was going to project was actually if you ever bought a book by the G, a Bible from the Jesus Seminar, which don't, um, they color code the text as to how likely it is Jesus actually said something. So if it's red, Jesus probably said, Jesus said this. If it's pink, Jesus might have said this. If it's another color, Jesus probably didn't say this. And if it's black, for sure, Jesus didn't say this. So some of it's inspired, some of it isn't. So it still exists. And the other view is the dictation view. Riles, and the dictation view, we would say, there's a few passages in Scripture where it seems like the people are actually writing down exactly what God tells them to as secretaries, but that's not the norm. Ryle's going to reject both of these views, and he's going to come up with this, he's going to endorse the view that we hold as a church, if you look at our statement of faith, uh, because he knew we were going to endorse it. That's why he, no, I'm just joking. No, um, so we, we are in a great tradition here. He held to verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means words, down to the words, Plenary means the whole. So the whole Bible is inspired down to its very words, which is what Dave has been teaching us. Um, so listen, listen to how clearly Ryle endorses this. And he has a great long track article um, on inspiration, but it's now, it's now in the book Old Paths. The view which I maintain is that every book and chapter and verse and syllable of the Bible was originally given by inspiration of God. I hold that not only the substance of the Bible, but its language. Not only the idea of the Bible, but its words. Not only certain parts of the Bible, but every chapter of the book. That all and each are of divine authority. I hold that scripture not only contains the words of God, but is the word of God. By the way, that's what Jesus believed. Jesus built whole arguments, and the apostles did too, on single words at times. Obscure little verse from the Old Testament, Jesus will take that, take one word out of that obscure verse, build an argument. Now, again, back to what we know. And so he qualified that, hey, we're, when we talk about inspiration, it's limited to the original Greek and Hebrew, and he would say Aramaic, just like we would. He affirms that there are challenging texts. So just because we as Christians affirm the authority of Scripture doesn't mean that there aren't tough things. So don't let the Bible be authoritative. Let it have some challenges. Don't try to flatten them by simplifying the Bible. But they are explainable. He does not claim to know the exact process. So in 2 Peter 1... There's this idea of inspiration um, basically described there about the Holy Spirit. Men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along is the word that's used for sailboats. So it's the wind is carrying along the boat. The boat is really going, um, but it's the Spirit that's the wind blowing them. So the Spirit is driving them where they go. It's the Spirit's power making them move. 
But as boats, they really are moving. They really are writing as they write scripture. And he recognized that this view of inspiration is difficult at times. Sometimes there's some, some challenges. Uh, there, it's, it's hard to know how to reconcile what, the, what it says here and here. And, but he says, listen, if you abandon it, you end up with way more, he basically says, tenfold the problems you would have unless you keep it. So as soon as you say, oh, there might be an error in the Bible, you've really got big problems. So that leads us from inspiration. If the Bible's inspired, I would say it has to be authoritative. So here's his view on authority. If God's statute book is not inspired and every word is not of divine authority, God's subjects are left in a pitiable state. So for Ryle, if inspiration is true, authority has to be true. Has to be. Because it's God inspiring. It's God making sure the right words are written down. Oh, here's, the, here's what I said, quoted earlier. Show us anything plainly written in, the, in that book, and however trying to flesh and blood, we will receive it, believe it, and submit to it. Um, this book, Old Paths, is, uh, I'm reading it right now, I've never read it before. Um, it's, it's great kind of explanation of just Christian thinking. Knots Untied is a book he wrote to counter Catholic influence uh, in, in the Anglican Church, and it's, it's a great model of polemics. But the real test of the authority of Scripture is how he handles challenging texts in what's known as expository thoughts on the Gospels which is like a commentary on the four Gospels. Um, within them, he's always pointing out Jesus views the Scriptures as authoritative. And human authority must not usurp authority of God's words. And that word usurp is important. Usurp means to take the unlawful place of another. And so when he uses that word, he's saying no human authority can usurp God's authority. And this becomes personal for him because his son, Herbert, who's kind of his pride and joy, also an intellectual giant, becomes an Anglican, um, ordained Anglican, becomes a liberal. And Ryle has to um, borderline excommunicate him out of the diocese of Liverpool because he was, checking, he was meant to approve certain um, men for the ministry. And Herbert wasn't faithful enough. Um, his other two sons also did not follow Christ. His daughters did. Um, oh, by the way, going back, weathering difficulties, he had three wives. They all died before him. Um, one of them uh, died only about 18 months. She, she had a baby and then a few months later died. Another one, he was married, Jesse, he was married to for 10 years. She was sick the whole time, 10 years before she died. I think had four or five kids, and then his last wife. Um, they were married for quite a while, but then um, she died 15 years before him. So when you, look at the, when you look at the Gospels, there's times where there's some really challenging texts. Was, did Jesus say this when he was entering Jericho or when he was leaving? And Ryle doesn't ignore them. He's not ignorant because Scripture's too important. We've got to look at it. And that's how we should, too. So we shouldn't just duck challenges. And again, there's not that many. Um, he also didn't abandon Scripture's authority. He didn't say, oh, well, because Jesus is saying we entered uh, 
entered Jer Jericho here um, and then leaving Jericho there. Uh, he's not saying, oh, well, we can't believe the Bible. So clearly, th there's still authority in Scripture to him. He always says the problems lie with the interpreters. It's the people. The people are the problems. Deep down, we're sinners. And we don't, we, we're not perfect in knowledge, so we don't know exactly what's going on. So he seeks out the best answers. And he's always trying to offer an explanation. And you wouldn't do that if you didn't believe Scripture is authoritative. Um, now the sufficiency of Scripture. If you think Scripture's God's Word, then probably you would assume God's Word is enough. And that's exactly what he believed. So this he's talking to ministers here when he's the Bishop of Liverpool. He's the first Bishop of Liverpool. Uh, held that position for 20 years from 1880 to 1900. He's telling other ministers, we corrupt the word of God when we make defective, defective statements of doctrine. We do so when we add to the Bible the opinions of the church or of the fathers as if they were of equal authority. We do so when we take away from the Bible for the sake of pleasing men. So Ryle's like, the Bible's enough. It's enough. Yeah, there's challenging people out there. They're unbelievers. And it seems like it would be easier to talk to them if you said, oh yeah, just ignore the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Or, or let's just imagine Jonah's a myth. It wasn't true. He says you can't do that. He also says you can't, you can't put other things up equal with Scripture. Otherwise, it undermines Scripture. And this becomes really evident because he advocates for private judgment. It allows him to evaluate things. So he's going to evaluate certain denominations, including his own. Um, and he's going to look at Protestant dissenters like Baptists who believe the Bible, uh, Plymouth Brethren, uh, Methodists. And he's going to say, those guys are my brothers. They're, 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 they believe the Bible. They trust in Jesus. Yeah, I wish they were in the Church of England, but I love those guys. And so let's be gracious to them. Now, a lot of Anglicans would have disagreed with that because of their own system and their own upbringing. But for Ryle, Scripture was sufficient to tell him, yeah, we can evaluate these people. Um, also, it al allows him to evaluate Anglicans. Just because people are in the same denomination with him didn't mean they were bad or good. Scripture could evaluate them. Tell us what that was. So quick question. We, most of us, as Americans, would have quickly jettisoned the Church of England, as soon as it started to get too Roman Catholic or too uh, liberal, uh, Ryle remained because of his understanding of Scripture. He says, hey, we've got this statement of faith called the 39 Articles, and he maintains it's the most scriptural statement of faith. We might disagree with that. But he thinks statements like the Westminster Confession, which is great, are just too detailed. They're trying to say too much, trying to make... Uh, decisions where the Bible leaves things open. So he thinks that the Anglican Church has the best confession. Um, he, he believes that there should be an established church. There should be a church that helps the government obey God. And he at one point basically says, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't even have to be Anglican. Maybe someday it'll be a Spurgeon, a Baptist Spurgeon, encouraging the, the king or queen to obey scripture and advanced kingdom uh, things.
things. Or maybe it'll be a Methodist doing that. But don't give up on the established church. He's basically going to lose that argument in his life. He's, gonna, he's not going to win that. There's going to be a move towards disestablishing the church. Um, and that's really hard for us in America. We're like, separation of church and state? We don't want you telling us what to do. Um, but he saw that biblically in Romans 13. Uh, and then this idea of the prayer book I won't get into. Um, but Catholics are trying to twist the prayer book. Um, okay. So now well, Riles writes tons of theology. He also writes three works of church history. Mostly by studying biographies and then writes short little snippet biographies. Um, Actually, technically, he wrote two. So he wrote a book called Light from Old Times and another book called Christian Leaders of the Last Century, which is now Christian Leaders of the 18th Century is what it's called because the last century has changed since then. Um, and then from Light from Old Times, there's a little booklet. And both of those books are in the, book, in the library called um, Five English Reformers. And I read them all. But to make sense of church history, and remember, polemics is basically arguing and critiquing with people. So he writes church history with that lens. He's using it primarily to, to stop Anglicans from drifting into Roman Catholicism. Um, so he's writing with that, ang that aim. So the importance of this great principle can never be overrated. This is about John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English. The true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. That's your job as a Christian. These are his marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Explain all by the light of the Bible. Test all in the crucible of the Bible. This is the standard which Wycliffe raised in England. You'll usually spell it, see Wycliffe spelled differently, but that's how he spelled it. So he's saying, the great news that came when we had the English Bible is that you, in England now, can test everything, and you're supposed to. I appreciate that you trust me. Trust the elders. That's really important. I think that's biblical. But you should be careful to too quickly saying, this doesn't make sense, but the elders say this, so I'm just going to blindly trust them. It would be better for you to say, like, that doesn't quite make sense. Could, would you guys give me a little bit of your time and just help explain how this is biblical? Don't do it combatively. But we, all preaching, all teaching, all ministers, all churches, we are not the word of God. So we can learn this from Ryle. And this guy is a bishop. So, but he's saying scripture, and this is a picture of Oxford where reformers were burned. The first book, the first chapter in Five English Reformers, you need to read. And you can find it online. It's called, Why Were Our Reformers Burned? Um, they were burned at Oxford. It says, hey, facts matter. We've got to get things right. So we, we need to check 
what happened in, in history. But then, using the Bible, he could evaluate church history. I, I, some of us don't get this. And I don't, we live in an age where there is no authority, and that makes evaluating things really hard. Yeah, except, yeah. So, uh, what was I, I was watching something recently, and they're like, hey, this, they're another culture. You can't evaluate them. They're just another culture. But what was really interesting, I shared this before, I think, Beijing Olympics, not the most recent ones, there was this big celebration. These athletes went into this dog meat factory and rescued 15 dogs, smuggled them back to the United States. What a victory, the animal rights activists say. But if you press those same animal rights activists, I bet, say, but that's cultural imperialism. That's you saying your American view of dogs is better than the Chinese view of dogs. And they go like, oh, shoot, I guess you're right. But if scripture is the authority, we can actually evaluate things. So he evaluates Roman Catholicism and destroys the foundational things to it. He says, according to scripture, you cannot believe these things. You cannot believe in transubstantiation. You cannot uh, believe that works mingled with grace actually save. And so he uses polemics against what he calls ritualism, which is in the Anglican church. So there are these people, these ritualists, who are basically Catholics, but they stay in the Anglican church. And Ryle's like, the 39 articles say you can't be here. But the denominational structures were breaking down. They had no way to kick them out. Um, he evaluated Protestant evangelicals. And he, so he used church history to celebrate preachers, celebrate godly men, say, follow their examples. And you can say, like, this guy was a little weird, we'll admit it. But he got these things right. And he's worth believing, um, worth following. And he, was, he wrote his church history to show that the strengths of religion were found, that were founded on the Bible succeeded. And those that weren't failed. So he would repeatedly show, like, here's what was happening when Roman Catholicism was in power in England, and look how horrible things were. And then you say, but all of a sudden there's revival, and the whole society has changed. And he would use that to evaluate not only people within his own denomination, but others, and he would give them the thumbs up if they were biblical. So it wasn't his, just his denomination that allowed him to make sense of church history. It was the Bible, ultimately. And then he actually engaged in controversies. Now, what's, this is an interesting thing because there's been, in, with, in the internet age, we become more and more aware of controversies that are out there. And it's really challenging as a pastor to know, do I wade in on that? Or don't I? Like, that's not really an issue for the people in my church on Sunday morning, but maybe it is in their minds Monday through Saturday. What do I do? Um, and I don't, know, I don't know that I'm an expert. And people are going to have different opinions on that. Like, Brett, you need to say something about this, and I'll listen. 
I may or may not engage. But Ryle engaged with the three big challenges of his age. He says, let us settle it next in our minds that there is no other rule of faith and judge of controversies but that simple one to which Christ always referred, the written word of God. So he's, when you engage in controversies, you can talk about sociology, you can talk about psychology, you can talk about statistics, but in the end, the real judge of what's right and wrong, it's the Bible. The Bible's authoritative. So he, his main target is ritualism. That's his main target. And he recognized that ritualism attacked the authority of Scripture. And so he looks at transubstantiation, the real presence within uh, the bread and the wine. He says, can't be proven. You've got to throw it out. You can't believe that. He's going to look at priests and confessing to them, which is making a resurgence in the Anglican church. He says, it's unscriptural, unhelpful. You have a high priest. His name's Jesus. Talk to him. Confess to him. Um, and then he's going to say, okay, any doctrines that add to the Bible, um, they're unscriptural. You, you get rid of them. Um, and so when he's going to talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's going to align, and this, this is what Paul does and Luther does, say, really, the Pharisees are the ritualists. Demand works that you've got to add to the Bible. And the Sadducees are the liberals. And he's going to, and the word that they used in his time which is neologian, or neologian, which is new law. We're changing the law to something new. We would now just call them liberals. Um, and he recognized that they, so whereas ritualists attacked authority of Scripture, neologians attacked the inspiration of Scripture. So it's just a human book. And so again and again and again, he's gonna, what he's going to try to do is undermine the assumptions of the liberals by generating distrust. Saying like, do you really, are you really sure that you know Hebrew better than all of these scholars who for hundreds of years have said that this, this means this. And you're coming along? You're the first person in 500 years to say it means this? You really that confident in, in yourself? Because um, the Bible's always been interpreted to mean this. Um, and the other thing is, is he's a supernaturalist. He believes there's spiritual, scriptural realities at play out there that have an influence. And he says, listen, liberals, you guys are sinners. The Bible says you're sinners. The Bible says that unbelief is a problem. So I'm not surprised you believe what you believe, but you're wrong. Um, and then the other thing that he engages in is Keswick theology. He critiques Keswick theology. So these Two categories are basically non-Christians in Ryle's mind, for the most part. Um, so, and that means some of his classmates who are up here. That means his beloved son down here. Um, Keswick theology. How many of you have heard of Ryle's book, Holiness? That was the first book I read by Ryle. I recommend you read it. Um, and what Keswick theology was, is it attacked the authority of Scripture too. Keswick theology were actually Christians, like Protestant believers, 
but their view of sanctification was going awry. They thought that like what the way you really get holy is you just kind of like consecrate yourself to God again and again. You don't work hard at sanctification. You don't try. You just kind of keep submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit. And Ryle's like, well, the Bible says work. And the Bible says, you know, persevere. Uh, and so he, he writes holiness uh, in, I think, 1877 to deal with Keswick theology. And the way he did that was by positively stating what Scripture does. So, so what Scripture says about becoming a holy person. So the way Ryle was able to engage in these three totally different controversies was always with the same exact foundation. It was always the Word of God. So the, the way I picture it is, you're on, um, you're on a mountaintop in a sword fight. And when you hold the high ground, you have a huge advantage. People can't get up. Or it's even better with weapons, with, with guns. You, you can shoot down a lot easier than they can shoot up. And so Ryle has taken his stand on Scripture. And what that has done is it allows him to stay in the same place and maneuver and engage in every aspect of ministry. So he doesn't have to, when he's engaging ritualism, jump to the authority of church history to try to answer the question. And then neologianism, he doesn't have to jump to science to answer, the, answer their challenges. And then Keswick theology, then jump to experience to try to answer these questions. You guys are impressed by my jumping? Thank you. Um, and he's saying, listen, if you stand on the Word of God, you don't need to jump at all. You stay in the, the same place, and you've got answers, and you've got power. And that's relevant for us. Um, so the conclusion is that the authority of Scripture is the way he explains his own life. You can't understand Ryle without understanding the authority of Scripture. He would say you don't understand him if you don't understand that Scripture is authoritative. It was foundational for all of his theological thought. He was unashamed to be an evangelical. And if you think we're outcasts now, it was just the same 150 years ago. But he just said, hey, we believe the Bible points us to a living Savior. We can trust him. He put forward an amount of writing and a breadth of writing across diversity that is uh, it, it's hard to fathom. He, wasn't, he didn't have a computer he could type on either. Um, and most of his writings really were all trying to influence people, trying to evangelize people, to, trying to uh, convert people, trying to persuade them to his positions. Um, it also allowed him to engage in church history. If there was no authority, authority of scripture, he couldn't do church history because it would just be facts maybe, but how would we know if that was true? So we can use that too. Right now there's lots of movements to um, revise history and we shouldn't be afraid of that a little bit, but our standards ultimately are the Bible. It's not 
socioeconomic theories. So if there are facts, the Bible is a book of historical facts. So we shouldn't be afraid of the facts. At the same time, if the facts have been decided and determined, we shouldn't change them. Um, and that's a unique strategy of his. Almost nobody wrote church history like that in his time period in Victorian England. Uh, very famous polemical church history was written before that. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody who read that? It's, it's basically a critique of Catholicism. Basically saying, look at all the, all the Christians Catholics killed. Um, um, so uh, the scripture gave him the foundation to evaluate and approve certain things. And then the authority of scripture allowed him to actually function in real controversies, real world. Uh, and so he didn't have to jump around from place to place or tile to tile. Uh, there's some bibliography which is required. So this, this website right here, www.tracks.ukgo.com slash Ryle will pretty much get you all of Ryle's stuff. And most of his things are like 15 short pages. Um, he is so quotable. There's a, a guy who wrote his PhD thesis in South Africa in 1990 on him. And mo most of his thesis, 300 pages, is just quotes of Ryle. Because he's just like, I can't say it any better. Um, very good. OK, so got just a few minutes. If you have questions, comments, concerns. Uh, Jim, I know you've read some Ryle over the years. You like him? Bill Farley, Ryle's probably one of Bill Farley's biggest heroes. Uh, any other thoughts, questions, concerns? John. Yeah, it's a great point, yep. Very common um, for even Christian philosophers who I respect to, um, to let philosophical opinions, particularly on things like free will, to start uh, to downplay the, uh, the Bible. Um, any other thoughts? Did this bore you? It's okay if it, I'm not offended if I bored you. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty boring person most of the time. Adam. At the time, was he kind of fulfilling himself as the guy out of authority of scripture, or was his no. stuff just so good on that topic that we recognize it now? And Great question. Yeah, no, he, he did not. All he did was start writing track. Well, he, he preached sermons. And then he's like, how do I care for the people that weren't able to make it on Sunday? Well, there's no internet. There's no podcasts. So he went and got people that would listen to him that were publishers and were like, that was a good sermon. Let's print it. And so he started, actually, and before that, he would pass around other tracts that other people had written to help his people. Um, and so then they started printing his sermons, and he would pass them around just to the congregation. And he was dirt poor because he was trying to pay off his dad's debts. He didn't even have to, but he was such a man of principle that he wore old 
ragged clothes so that he could fulfill his dad's debts. And his dad didn't even really like him after he became a Christian. Um, and uh, so he's just putting these out, and then, and then all of a sudden, you're like, wow, this guy's an amazing writer. Even the liberal, there's this guy, there's a liberal who went to Oxford that's like, man, I hate what he writes, but only an Oxford man could write like that because he's such a good writer. Um, and, uh, and so th that starts getting disseminated. I mean, some of these tracks, hundreds of thousands of them printed and distributed. There's a, a Jesuit a missionary in Mexico going to uh, um, trying to help the Mexicans, and he reads one of Ryle's tracts and is converted, quits being a Jesuit. Um, and so it just starts, so as people are reading his stuff, he's rising, but he never, and he says this, he never really cared what people thought. He was super courageous that way. Um, he, it, it, when he went to Oxford, he, it, he was disgusted by other wealthy people, and what happened to Eaton too, that they would be obsessed with the name, like, oh, you're a Trump, or you're an Obama, or you're a Gates. Like, he, would, he saw that up close, and it disgusted him. He's like, so you're giving people authority when you don't even know them just based on their name? And he, so it never bothered him. When, because he was so good at cricket, he was the captain of the team, he had to make hard decisions. And so, um, so his stuff just kept going out, and he would get criticized. He was evaluated as a bishop as not very good because, by the Liverpool papers because they wanted someone to build him a cathedral. And Ryle's like, yeah, let's build a cathedral, but more importantly, we've got to get people out there preaching the gospel. That's my priority. Um, and so as time is going on, he really is the, the biggest leader in, in evangelical um, England and Anglicanism. And, um, uh, and so that's kind of how, it, it, he just became an authority across the board. So um, any other thoughts? I'm, you, I'm wasting our prayer time. I'm sorry, everyone. Wayne. So, that's a good question. Um, it provided opportunities. You, I, I think even um, Ann, your brother-in-law, stayed in the Anglican church. He's an evangelical. Un, unrecognized by Anglican. Because there was a cultural trust being in the Church of England. So he probably gained some capital that way. But there were times where he took heat for it. Um, there would be time, and Spurgeon criticized him once or twice for it, um, but, but, but saying, really respected the man, but said like, how does this make sense? Um, and then uh, there were some like hardline evangelical publications that would say, Ryle, we love you, what you write, but why are you still an Anglican? Come be a Methodist like us, or a Dissent or you know a congregational like us congregationalist, but um, good question. I don't know that I could um, decide that. So Murray is a little too simplistic. He says Ryle Ryle made a huge mistake. He should have left the Anglican Church. 
Um, and it was more complicated than that. Uh, there's a PhD thesis. It's a book now called J.C. Ryle, uh, Heart, Heart of a Lion, something like that, uh, by Bennett Rogers. And it's an intellectual biography. It's not that engaging to read. But he, he evaluates that a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Matt. That's how he viewed it. So, and the, and the authority of Scripture factored into that because he said, listen, we've got the 39 articles. The 39 articles are evangelical. Like, so as long as we got that, we're, we're safe. You don't need, in fact, he, he loved the Puritans and he, he thought that the reason the Puritans when they were uh, in the generations before him were ejected was because the Church of England screwed up. But he also said they let themselves be ejected. They should have just said, we got the we're, we're following the 39 articles with what we're doing here, and we're safe. Um, my thesis, in my thesis defense, my professor, his name is Guy Waters, or my advisor, he said, well, what do you think Ryle would think of the Church of England today? Would he still be in it? And I said, I don't know, but Ryle, it seems miscalculated the greater threat. He thought the greater threat was ritualism, Roman Catholic influence, and really the greater threat has seemed to be proven to be liberalism in that denomination. And I don't think, obviously I don't know, um, I don't think he would remain an Anglican anymore because the 39 Articles doesn't function as a statement of faith for them in any way. In fact, I think I've heard the story with Tony. I could be wrong here. Um, Tony Jones. So he was an unrecognized Anglican in Durham, England. <clears throat> His bishop was N.T. Wright, if you've heard of N.T. Wright, who had some really good stuff and some really bad stuff. <clears throat> and Tony was meeting with Wright and said, and Wright says, well, listen, if you're an Episcopal Anglican, you need to submit to a bishop. You need to submit to me. You're not an Anglican. Tony says, no, 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 no. I'm a better Anglican than you are because I believe the 39 articles. And what you're teaching about justification by faith, not true. So how they define that. And N.T. Wright was a, continues to be a celebrated Anglican. And Tony Jones moves to Philadelphia. To not, yeah, and there, there, is, there is a resurgence. Well, the Anglican Communion, very liberal in England, very, very liberal in Canada, very liberal in the United States. But it's the second largest denomination in the world. Very conservative in South America. Very, very conservative in Africa, where most Anglicans are. Conservative in Asia. Um, and so what a lot of conservative Anglicans now have aligned themselves with these Africans. Um, so pretty cool. And that's what Tony did for a while. Yeah. So we know a couple of Anglicans would be very, very much on the, the conservative side. Yeah. So how do you think about that? conservative Anglican church here. There's two? I guess I didn't know that. One home church and then one the Yeah. If you went... Okay. Yeah. There's one right outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. What's uh? Christ. Christ our peace. Okay, yeah, the Christ are, um, are is it peace? Uh, what's Gaines? Gaines yeah. is it a pastor? Billy Gaines? Yeah, um, yeah. No, if 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 I was in a small town uh, and there is a conservative Anglican church, I would I would say let's consider it, depending. On, but I'm not convinced of bishops, and there's a little bit of high churchiness that I, I tend to kind of uh, address a little close to ritualism, even in men. So personally, I have a, a little pause, but I wouldn't hesitate to call the conservative ones like that, brothers in Christ, and pray for them and encourage them. So um, good question. He, Ryle, what you have to understand for conservative Anglicans is Ryle is to them what Spurgeon is to Baptists. Like, so if you go to Australia, where there's a lot of conservative Anglicans, particularly around Sydney, um, like Ryle's their guy. They love him. Okay, time's up. Um, what I want you to take away from this, read J.C. Ryle. Um, is he's not hard to read. And even written 150 to 170 years ago, or some a little newer than that, you'll find it amazingly relevant because it's scriptural. Okay, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this day. We pray that this would not be academic and irrelevant, but that we would leave here rejoicing that there is an authoritative word that has come from you, and we are about to read it and hear it and have it preached to us. Lord, we pray that we would bow to it, knowing that by doing so we're bowing to you and being saved by you as we do. Help us, we pray. Point us to Jesus through the Bible and encourage us uh, to rejoice in the fact that we're in a long line of believers who will fellowship with forever in heaven. Amen. Have I? Yeah. No. I think that would be kind of cool to, to do little, maybe five minute clips of different aspects of GC Ralph. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I actually just talked to the guys the other day like, about possibly doing like.